So I wrote the perfect sermon, but I forgot to push save. Actually, thanks to Grant, I now use Google Docs, which saves every word that I write, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So you get this sermon, perfect or not. Remember that moment in middle school when the teacher handed back the tests and everybody would compare your grades. Oh, I got an 89. What did you get? What, what did you get for number 19? That one was really hard. Yeah, I hated those moments because everybody always wanted to know what I got. And when I told them, they always got mad at me, especially in grade seven and eight math class. Because every time they would ask, well, how did you do? And I would tell them, I did, I did okay. And they would ask, well, what, what specific number did you get? What grade did you get? And I would say, 98. And they would roll their eyes. That's not just pretty good, that's really good. Ugh, you're so smart, I hate you. <laughs> Middle schoolers are rotten. <laughs> and it's true. I did really good at grade seven and eight math. I really did get 98% most of the time. Um, I remember that that was my average for the year, for both years. And I remember that number exactly because that was kind of my thing. That was my identity. I was Mr. 98. I got a 98% on tests so often that it was uncanny. And here's the thing. My friends would always go through that routine, another 98. Oh, you're so smart. I hate you. And I would be sitting there thinking, another 98. What the heck? I should have gotten 100. I was trying for 100. <laughs> and I would obsess over that simple mistake that I made for the next week. But I couldn't talk about that with anyone because nobody has any sympathy for the guy who complains about the one question that he got wrong on a test. But I was upset about it, not because it mattered to anyone else. Everybody knew that I was one of the smartest kids in the class, including me. My parents and teachers were perfectly happy with my grades. Like a 98 average gets you a lot of praise. But I was still unhappy with that mark because I knew I could do better. That's the thing about seventh grade math. There's a perfect conclusion to every problem. And the path is clear. You know exactly where to start. You know what steps to follow. And you do those things right, and you get one single, correct, verifiable answer. And you're even required to show your work, to put each step down on paper. So there was no excuse for me to get a 98 on a test. I knew how to do the work. I knew the steps. I would just make one simple mistake on each test. I knew I was capable of 100%, but I always fell just short, no matter how hard I tried. And so what should have been a, a good moment, that's great, you're doing really well, became a not quite good enough every week, burned into my brain. That's the world of the Enneagram type one right there. Never enough. It doesn't matter what everyone else thinks. It doesn't matter how many things they accomplish, how many awards they win, or how close they get to the top. Ones always know that they could be doing better. I had a lot of one-ish tendencies when I was a teenager. I never knew what to do with compliments. If somebody was impressed with that 98 I got in a math test, I had to point out, well, see, this is the one that I got wrong, and this is what I should have done instead. Or I remember after uh, high school choirs, um, everybody's choir concerts, people are impressed, and other parents come up and say, oh, that was beautiful, thanks, whatever. And I would take the time to correct their compliments. I would give them a breakdown, well, we didn't hit this note quite right here, the tenors messed up over here, it was always the tenors. <laughs> or I vividly remember, just like I was there, the, the mechanics of taking a three-point shot in my grade 12 basketball championship game. I remember exactly what that shot felt like. A pass coming, catch, shoot, 
release, and that moment where I knew I missed was short. I feel that, like I got goosebumps acting that out. I, I know what that feels like, and I missed. I don't remember anything about the shot, the exact same shot from the exact same place in the court that I made 30 seconds earlier, the one that had tied the game. I don't remember that at all. I don't remember the success, only the failure. The one type is not my primary number these days, but I still have a lot of one in me. I think the biggest distinctive of the one type is that their primary drive comes from within. Ones have an inner sense of morality and justice. As we've said, they just know how things are meant to be. Ones, along with eights and nines, are the gut types or the body types on the Enneagram. They have these strong instincts that drive them. Enneagram teachers Ian Cron and Suzanne Stabile say that the best way to find out if someone is a one is to ask them, do you hear the voices? Ones have voices in their heads, not in a mental disorder kind of way, but the voices of conscience and intuition and this constant, constant voice of criticism. For a lot of people, that inner voice sounds like their mother or their father, maybe an old instructor or a coach. You all know the saying, practice makes perfect. Well, I had a basketball coach who said that that was hogwash. Practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. Perfect practice makes perfect. So the pressure was you had to be perfect even in your practice. He never did explain how I was supposed to get from where I was to this perfect practice that he was envisioning. But what do I know? I missed that game-winning shot. Many ones go home from work or school with a list of all the things they failed to accomplish that day. They go to bed with a list of things that they could have done better, and they wake up with the resolve that today's the day, I'm going to take on that whole list of failures from yesterday, I'm going to do those things right, and I'm going to do the things that I already had scheduled in to do today. Ones love to make lists of things they need to do and do better next time. Not good enough. Those themes of shame that we talked about here in the spring, those are really powerful for a one. Do it all and never let them see you sweat, as Brene Brown said. That's all you have to do to be worthy. All the problems in the world, the ones bear the weight of all of those because they see what is possible and they just know how to fix them. And because they know, they should. That inner sense of justice is an obligation, an obligation to themselves and an obligation to the entire world fixing all their personal flaws as well. That's the project for the ones. By completing the work of self-improvement, then they will be worthy of love. By working hard enough, by being perfect enough, then they will be able to fix all of those broken relationships. That is a huge weight to carry. It's a huge load of shame when ones fail to live up to what they see as perfectly reasonable, achievable expectations. The other primary emotion for the ones, again in common with the eights and nines, as we'll talk about in coming weeks, and the primary emotion for the one is anger. Anger at the world for being broken. Anger at others for not doing their part to fix it. Resentment that it always seems to come down to them to fix the world's problems. If you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. A wonderfully one-type sentiment and then anger internalized because they do it themselves and they still see that no matter what they've done, it's fallen short of their own standards. My favorite line from the song One by Sleeping at Last that we'll listen to in a little bit. 
No, I'm not saying perfect exists in this life. We'll only know for certain if we try. I hope that you can see the beauty in that statement, the courage and strength and clarity to take on that challenge of the world as it should be, even while knowing the odds against perfection. For ones, I imagine that that feels like an exhausting burden, a chain of compulsion. But don't miss the goodness and hope that, that others experience in that drive for beauty, for justice and truth. Because as ones, you look at the world and you not only see how things might be better, you have a plan for how to get us there, or at least where to start. And we need that vision of a better world. And ones bring that vision to us and they invite us to join in in this struggle of making it real. Does any of this sound familiar? Can you imagine a, a personality looking at the reality in front of them, making plans to fix it up and make it better, to save us, heal us, redeem us, sanctify us, make us holy and whole? Are you familiar with any deities that share that longing for the world to be a better place? Perhaps you know the ancient Yahweh, God of the Hebrew tribes. Be ye holy, for I am holy. For I am the creator God who has called you out and set you apart, calling you to be sacred, to be different. That's what holy means, kadosh in Hebrew, hagios in Greek. Different, set apart. Different from what? Well, the direct answer is different from everyone else, or if you like, different from those pagans over there. And the Judeo-Christian religion has invested a ton of time and energy in difference for the sake of distinction. We are not like them. That's what we've often interpreted holy to mean. But there's a different story we could choose there. Not different for the sake of distinction, but different for the sake of choosing a better way. That's the deeper link in the Hebrew story, that God called them out of slavery in Egypt and God set up a different kind of society, not because God doesn't like Egyptians, but because the Egyptian society built on slavery was destructive for everyone. And the ways of Torah and Shalom that God offered to the Hebrews, that was a better way for everyone to live. And so they practiced all these food laws and, and ritual purity, and those things weren't purely symbolic. They were practical health issues for individuals and for the society at stake. Turns out that eating food from animals that are raised, selected, and slaughtered with care according to particular rules, that's simply a better way to eat than eating creepy crawlies and pigs that wallow in their own filth. Sorry, pig enthusiasts. I know that that is a myth and pigs are actually very clean animals. The science then was primitive, but the intent the intent was there. The intent was not only for ritual purity, not only to be different from them, but it was pragmatically healthier to be a better people, to be a better society. In other words, the religious distinctions of the ancient Hebrew purity laws were intended to serve the project of holiness, not the other way around. This continues with Jesus and the Christian New Testament writers. We see Jesus making this move repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you. As far as the law served to promote love and justice and health, the goodness of society and individuals, when that was the case, Jesus kept the law. He practiced it. He doubled down on it. 
But when the law made life harder, but not better, then he left it behind. He was free to walk away from the law in search of a better way. The Apostle Paul did the same, systematically breaking down the old way and calling for a higher way, a new community, a holiness that was fuller and deeper and richer and more complete. If ones have a patron saint, it's definitely the Apostle Paul. He of the endless self-improvement project, lists upon lists upon lists of things to do and not to do, and then he gets to the end of this, he's told everybody else what they need to do, he's tried hard to do it himself, to do, to do it himself and he still says, here I am, the chief of sinners. He's very one-like. So, ones in the room, get ready to hear your favorite words in the whole wide world. You're right. <laughs> you are right. You really are. The world can be a better place. And we all have work to do. This is not the perfect sermon. I will try again next week. And that's a good thing. I really can do better. We all can do better. As we've heard over and over again in 2018, we have to do better. The pursuit of what is better is a sacred, godly pursuit. The one project is God's project. As a pastor, I would say that your instinct for justice, that feeling of just knowing what's right and true and just, that's a connection to the divine truth of the universe. That's the spirit of God in you. And so I want to celebrate that voice in your head because to the point that it calls you and the rest of us to a higher and better way, that is the voice of God. So that's the good news. And in keeping with the one style, I also have better news. How God goes about this project of holiness is a better way. For most ones, the struggle to be better is this cycle of critique and effort. Notice all the failures and all the problems, try harder, try harder to fix them, and look at what you've tried, critique the results to find what's still wrong, try to fix that, critique the fixes, and around and around we go. If we work hard enough, ones believe eventually we'll get to the end, and then everything will be perfect and we'll finally be okay with ourselves. But this good enough remains elusive and the project never ends. In the biblical story, God certainly offers plenty of critique, or at least that's how it's presented. God's prophets do this work of criticizing and telling people what's wrong with the world. They speak out about injustice at great length. They call people to account for their actions, large and small. Criticism is a useful tool in God's restoration project. Take Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. He didn't shy away from the truth of her life. He didn't say, well, it's fine that you've been living the way that you've been living. Just keep, keep on doing it. You're, you're, you're going to get there, girl. Like, he didn't say that. And he didn't hesitate to critique her theology. But he also didn't reject her. He didn't tell her, go and fix that stuff and then come back when you have it all together. The critique was accompanied by acceptance. So that instead of judgment, Jesus offered an invitation. All who were thirsty, come and drink. Come and find rest. So that the invitation to a better way was not obligation, but it was mercy, it was freedom. Likewise, the woman caught in adultery. Jesus did not condemn her as the keepers of the law did. Instead, he offered mercy and the invitation to begin again. Go and sin no more. Again, not just keep on doing what you're doing. Don't not 
go on and try harder as you did before, but you're free. You've been received, you've received grace instead of condemnation. Now she's free to be a different, to, be, to move forward in a different way. That was always the spirit of the law, even in the Hebrew Bible, to offer freedom and mercy, along with the invitation to live into a better way, a more full way of relating to God and all of creation. And the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the way of Jesus, that was confirmation of the depth of God's mercy and grace. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has freed you from the law of sin and death. You are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. No condemnation. The project of the ones always ends in frustration because it's impossible. Instead, the invitation of Jesus is to begin with mercy and grace and to let those beginnings guide us more than our intended destination. When I was beginning my career as a pastor at the age of 19, I took a week-long course on youth ministry. I'm at AMBS, the Mennonite Seminary in Indiana. You only need a week to learn how to be a youth pastor, apparently. There were about a dozen of us in the course. Um, a lot of really good people, many of whom had already had years of experience as youth pastors. So these are people that I was looking up to. I was eagerly engaged in the work of building new friendships. One evening at the end of our week, we took a trip to the beach of Lake Michigan just for fun. And at some point we set out to build the world's largest sand castle. That was, that was the goal we set for ourselves at the beginning of the project. But after about 45 minutes of digging and carrying sand, what we had was more like a large off-center pyramid, kind of more of a pile than a castle, and people started to lose interest and move on to other things. Except me. I was still there, adding more sand, trying to get the sides to be square, Come on, guys, we said we were going to build this amazing castle, so we need to do it. We need to do it the way we set out to do it. But they just laughed and called it a postmodern sandcastle. And they walked away. We'd been talking about postmodernity in our youth ministry class, the idea that there are multiple stories and multiple perspectives available, so things weren't as straightforward as the idealism and progress that the modern world would have us believe in. So a postmodern sandcastle could have sagging corners and no true center because the point was never about building the perfect sandcastle. The point was having fun on the beach. It took me about 15 minutes of working away in the hot sun by myself, making very little progress on the perfect sandcastle before I realized what they were saying. The quality of the sandcastle was not the best story that day. The group of friends having fun together, that was a story worth pursuing. And so I joined them and I left a little bit of my one identity on the beach that day. That's the way of Jesus, I think, to shift our focus from the pursuit of perfection to the pursuit of participation in a better story of relationship. The way of Jesus invites us beyond justice to mercy, mercy towards others, mercy towards ourselves. The way of Jesus seeks not purity, but righteousness being in right relationship with each other and our world. The way of Jesus seeks not perfection, but integrity. Integrity meaning that which is necessary, that which brings wholeness. We don't have to ignore or shut up the voices in our heads, as if we could. Instead of shutting them up, 
we embrace them for the ways that they keep us oriented towards what is good and holy and whole. And we can direct those voices, direct our pursuit of perfection, direct that back into the project of wholeness and integrity, reminding ourselves of the legitimacy of the journey. That's simple math. Take it from me, Mr. 98%. I even showed my work. <laughs> Type 1s, the rest of us will try to recognize how difficult it is for you to follow this, to allow mercy and grace to be part of the process. We don't want you to stop being who you are. We need your drive for integrity. In return, we ask that you will trust us. Trust that we also carry the spirit of God in our imperfect ways of being and loving and knowing. There is truth and goodness in the whole circle, not only in the ones. It's not the vision of perfection that you might have imagined, but it is a magnificent thing indeed. For our prayer ritual today, I'm going to invite us to participate in the prayer of communion. I know I'm not doing communion right. I did not observe the protocol of warning you two weeks in advance so that you can examine your hearts and make all your relationships right before you come to the table. That was the Apostle Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth. He was very concerned that people not um, eat and drink the blood, body and blood of Christ in an unworthy manner. Like I said, Paul was definitely a one. As though it were ever possible to make ourselves worthy. So today, sorry, worthy or not, you're going to have to come as you are. And yet, the table still stands, open and waiting. The bread represents the body of Christ, blessed and broken, offered freely to give you sustenance and strength. The juice represents the blood of Christ, poured out for you, because your sins are forgiven. Your weaknesses are embraced by the breath of God. All who wish are invited to come. You can take a piece of bread, dip it into the juice before you eat, or if you're not comfortable with that, you can eat the bread and then have a, a cup of juice separately. Let's pray. God's love is patient with you. God's love is kind to you. God's love is not suspicious or self-righteous or smug or abusive. God's love does not insist on its own way. God's love does not cut you down. God's love is not sharp or easily offended. God does not keep track of your failures. God doesn't take pleasure in your facade. God rejoices in your true self. God's love carries you, trusts in you, hopes for you, and endures with you, always. God's love never fails. Amen. Come and see. Hold on for a minute, cause I believe that we can fix this over time. Perfect.
Requires nothing of me. 